I'm Professor Dido Green, Professor in Occupational Therapy at Jönköping University in Sweden. I also have worked as a clinician and researcher and academic in the United Kingdom. We're going here today with um, colleagues um, Nicole Stewart, who is a mother of a child with special needs and founding director of a new charity, Possibilities, which is being set up in Gibraltar to provide a resource centre for children with special needs in Gibraltar. And Gillian Salucci, who is a um, physiotherapist and health professional who's been practicing in sub-Saharan Africa and Afri South Africa for over 30 years, working with children and families with special needs and disabilities in low resource facilities and contexts. So we are talking um, just wanting to talk about a recent editorial that was published in the April edition of Development Medicine and Child Neurology in which I broached the uh, topic of evidence-based practice. How is this conceptualized and how is it applied? And as a researcher, we have very, very specific constructs of what we consider to be evidence and robust evidence. But that's not necessarily the same meaning um, that we have or you may have on the coal face, um, so to speak. So, Nicole, I thought I would just ask you then, um, what does evidence-based practice mean to you? So I would say that evidence-based practice means that whatever is being applied, whether it be at the charity or in a particular therapy that my son may go to, it means that it comes from having been researched. It comes from having got that good standing. So it gives, I suppose, a parent who may not be familiar with a particular initiative or practice or therapy that they're going through, it might give them the confidence to trust or have more faith in whatever um, they might be um, going to. So, okay. So how do you see, what does that look like to you then in practice? What would that look like in your organization? It would look that it would be well networked. I hope that makes sense. So it means that say, for example, I um, contract um, an independent speech and language therapist and that speech and language therapist comes along and they have no evidence base and they don't have that research behind them or that evidence to support um, the therapy that they're providing, then that might not give the confidence to me as a director of such charity to give that therapy on, on to my service users. And it also, um, may not inspire the confidence that we have or that we would need to build in the parents that will be bringing their children to receive that. So I think evidence-based would look like me being able to introduce um, this therapist to these families that can support the work they're doing with previous lines of, of, of research studies and evidence to show what they would be doing. So you're really trusting the professionals to have done that research and wanting to implement that. I'm going to take that then over to you, Gillian, because that might not be so easy when you don't have the resources necessarily to provide those interventions that have yeah. been researched in more well-resourced facilities. So my experience has been as a clinician and the settings where I've worked have been where you have, it's characterized where you have very limited time with the child and the child's family. So you may only get to see the child once a month 
or you may get to see them for a short period, say five days, but that may only happen once a year. So in those settings, and, and I've also worked at a very large hospital, the Chris Hani Baragwanath Hospital, where there were you know, up to 25 children in one morning. And so your time with each child and each family is extremely limited. And so it becomes really important to say, I've got such a little time, I can't waste my time doing things that don't work. And I must be honest and say it was very hard when you go to the literature looking for what works because the research that is being done, because I think research um, is not a cheap exercise to carry out. So it's done firstly in well-resourced settings to start with. So most of the research that's being done makes assumptions about the population of people that you're working with and what you have available. And what I found again and again is that there was a total mismatch between the population of children that um, were kind of the subjects in, in whatever randomized control trial there was and the population that I was working with. And that made it really difficult to try and um, – apply evidence-based practice. And I remember clearly then there was quite a few years ago, there was a lot of emphasis on um, muscle strengthening, for example. Now, the population of children in the settings that I work are largely, uh, the majority of them are level four and five children. Level four and five children with quite significant um, comorbidities or associated impairment, particularly cognitive and visual. And so I really couldn't figure out how muscle strengthening was, was just, just one example of, of many. How was I going to do muscle strengthening on a level four disconnected child? I knew it was important. I could understand it, but it just didn't make sense to me in a way. And so a lot of the research that's been done has focused, I think, on level one to three children. So that's the first difficulty that I've, that I've found, level one to three children whereas I'm working more with level four and five children. And I'm also working with children and families that have had little input um, to date. So the starting point is quite different. Um, and you make assumptions about parents. So a simple example is, oh, goal setting is so important. But no one really tells you that in order to set goals, um, there has to be a certain level, I think, of insight and understanding from the parents' point of view in order to set a realistic goal for their child. And parents may often still be at the stage of having dreams and hopes for their child. So there's a lot of work background or kind of catch-up work to do in order to get to the point where you can apply um, evidence-based um, practice. Yeah, that's really interesting in a way, because when I look at uh, how I've written this editorial that randomized control trials and this high level of research at one level is, is worthy and um, gives us confidence in some aspects, but it doesn't help us apply it in many of the contexts that are of, uh, realistic for uh, families. Um, I know what you said, Gillian, and I uh, want Nicole, if you can respond to that in respect to setting those goals, looking at yourself as a parent, whether our evidence we need to, when we're looking at what 
level of education or training or support and collaboration we have with families should be that first level of evidence. Yes, definitely. And I think I speak for Gibraltar a lot um, and, and the type of um, community we have. And we in our community have a shortage of therapists as it is. So currently the demographic of parents with special needs children find that they, um, in order for something to be therapy, they have to have the therapist present. So I think that is why um, if the therapist perhaps showed the parents, look, what we're going to be doing has come from X, Y, and Z foundations of research, then I think that that would be um, more conducive to better rolling forward of therapy provisions. Because we find that in order, for example, um, for, there to, for there to be physiotherapy with an individual, the physiotherapist has to be present. And it's taking us a while for them to be shown and to be, you know, to, for it to be explained to them that as long as there is a plan in place that is being professionally followed, not necessarily by the therapist himself, but perhaps the therapy assistant, that 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 that, that, is, that is better. So, I think that is where parents' perspective would come in. Um, that, does does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, just the the how is evidence implemented, um, and in your situation Gillian there aren't there any therapists either so parents are having to take over a lot of that responsibility to enable particularly these children with much more complex much more profound levels of difficulty or the severity of the co-occurring conditions that just and family circumstances that complicate delivery and that I'm, my take-home message, I think, is as a researcher, we need to be broadening our horizons and looking at perhaps different methodologies to find evidence that supports implementation in a more creative way, that it ha- doesn't have to be a precise, research, you know, delivered package of 60 hours a week or 60 hours over a fortnight or three times a week by a physiotherapist, but there's ways of integrating therapeutic activities in daily lives in different ways depending on the context when you don't have resources you just have to be a lot more creative and I think you have a lot more freedom to be creative because you're kind of desperate in a way and you've got to make things work so it makes me as a therapist totally dependent on the family and the parents and I think it comes very easily to me to say that my partnership with parents and my collaboration with parents is absolutely fundamental um, to any intervention that you do because I'm not a fixture in the parent's life at all. And for me, I think what's been really helpful and what's been really exciting is that whole process of developing capacity or recognizing the inherent resilience and capacity that parents have and harnessing that, but most importantly, helping parents themselves to believe and to know that they are the experts. They know their child better than I will ever know. And I think once you start working with parents as partners, that each of you bring something to the equation, 
um, and you say, this is what I think is important or et cetera, how are we going to do it? Really, the sky becomes the limit. Um, and there's, I, I guess, when it comes to, when you're talking about the point of evidence, at the end of the day, why are we doing intervention? Oh, and that's another thing that I think in some ways has been helpful in that we don't have the luxury of, because you don't have the luxury of regular therapy, and we've also got to move away from the idea that management of uh, children with special needs is about exercises and going for therapy. It's not. It should be integrated. It should be a way, a way of life, not something special or something that you do differently. So everything can be done in a helpful way. And it's so encouraging to see the evidence says, yes, you've got to have practice and opportunities. Well, that's what we kind of have been doing without really giving it a name. So a lot of the evidence that's out there, maybe they use different words, but when you actually unpack it, you say, yeah, it's not too different from what we have been doing, that you want children to be active, you want parents and children to participate, don't become dependent on the therapist, but then what then is the role of the therapist? And I think what we all want at the end of the day is for children to fulfill their role, their role within their family, um, within their school, wherever they may be, and it's about full participation. And so what, what is preventing that participation and what can help us? And what I find in the settings where I work, because children are more severely involved and haven't had the benefits of early intervention, you have a lot more, uh, and uh, the, the musculoskeletal deterioration just happens far more quickly. So you're dealing with a lot, of, uh, a lot more contractures, tightness, stiffness, for which there's very little evidence for what you do anyway. You know, if you don't have Botox and you don't have surgery, yes, you can make splints. But there's really not, not a lot to say, what are you going to do to slow down the inevitable musculoskeletal deterioration? And that, I think, is where the role of the therapist is so important. Because if a child can't sit or can't sit comfortably without pain, how on earth can they participate? So... I think without that partnership with parents and collaborating with parents, parents are, you know, we both 50% of the equation. You can't have one without the other. I think that's a fabulous point for us to end this podcast on. Um, and my take home message from this, I think Nicole, you'll agree that we need to put uh, children, their family center of our evidence piece yes. and build from that uh, in order to implement um interventions across and within and embed that as part of daily life rather and so re-envisage how we deliver evidence in, in essence 